This is heard right here on WHCR 90.3 FM, the voice of Harlem. You're we're action packed episode of Be Heard Talk. What's going on, y'all? This is I am here. About time I got to shape up before Selena slanders me, and I am ready for another great show. Last week we had the rabbi, this week we don't have the rabbi. It's gonna get weird, guys. But anyways, if you want to follow me, you can do so at Twitter at Stan Fritz. You can also do so on Instagram at Stan Fritz. You can do so on Snapchat, but I never post there. It's Dark Skin Swindle. And I'm on this show with three other wonderful people. So I want to throw this Lena Hill real quick. Hey, guys, and welcome to Be Her Talk. This is a show where we talk race, politics, and culture from our very unapologetic perspectives. Um, like Stanley said, my name is Selena Hill. You can find me on Instagram and Twitter at Miss Selena Hill. That's with an M or MS. I'm super excited about today's show. Uh, we have a very special guest who will be joining us a little later in the show to really unpack um, just the nation of Islam. We have a speaker, a special speaker who will be speaking on behalf of uh, that community group. Um, and um, we're going to just have an open and candid conversation because as Stanley mentioned, last week we talked about the intersectionality of, of um, anti-Semitism and racism with uh, Rabbi Abraham Cooper. So we wanted to sort of uh, extend that conversation in a way, uh, but of course invite a, a very different, um, a, a very different group to have the conversation with us. So tune in, stay tuned for that. Again, that's coming up a little later in the show. Uh, I do want to just uh, throw it to Evan. I will introduce. Uh, Evan is one of our correspondents here on Be Heard Talk. He's joining us for the first half of the show, the news roundup. How's it going, Evan? It's going good. If you hear something scream in the background, it's my cat child. I'm just letting you know. Uh, nothing else going on. Uh, I'm glad to be here. Thank you always for inviting me. It, it always means a lot to be a part of Be Heard Talk. And uh, also, I just want to give a shout out to my other publication with Stanley Fritz, Let's Not Be Trash. Please join us at letsnotbetrash.com. Join the conversation about dismantling patriarchy, talking about the intersections of that and racism. And yeah, open conversation. We invite uh, men to join us there and listen to our podcast. Yeah. And last but not least, we have Tammy David, our third uh, co-host that completes our trio. How's it going? Here. Hi, Selena. <laughs> um, hi, y'all. My name is Tammy David. I'm Be Heard's problematic fave, uh, ready to talk my shit and get lit. Uh, today's problematic opinion is Call me Jill, because I don't believe in racial superiority and any kind. And if your platform is pro-Black, but believes in racial superiority, then I can't get behind it. Um, before we, what? Well, you shooting, shooting today, huh? Yeah, I told you, I'm in my bag today. I'm very excited for our conversation because I think it'll be, um, you know, we, we're going into it with sort of an educational mindset. We've got, we want to give the platform a chance to sort of explain Nick Cannon's comments from like the other side of things. But, you know, I also want to make sure that the conversation remains fair and reasonable and calm. And so that's where I'm at today. I'm a little nervous. Um, before we get to all of that, though, which I'm sure y'all are dying to see, um, I'm going to lead y'all through the news roundup, which is the portion of the show where we talk about things that made you scratch your scalp this week and say, boy, isn't 2020 enough already? Damn. We're going to talk about Kanye's further, further breakdown. 
We're going to talk about some political hot mess, including some casual misogyny on the Capitol Hill steps. Or was it misogyny? You tell us. Um, and we're also going to be talking about the federal occupation that is not getting enough attention. Um, so thank you for joining us. And I'm very, very excited. Um, so first up, I just want to say Kanye's public mental breakdown is far from over. Uh, we talked about this last week and we were joking, you know, some of us worried for his state need to just call wifey up, tell Kim to do something with her man. And last week she did. And it looks like she's trying all she can. So with the back and forth that she had, uh, last week Kim put out a statement urging folks to have compassion for Kanye and what he's going through. She alerted the public that people with mental health cannot be forced to get help even if they need it. Huge side eye. Uh, she references being a black man and the loss of his mother as things that he's been going through, but notes that he is still a genius and needs the same care and attention. Apparently, Kanye did not appreciate his wifey speaking out of turn because he put her on blast. He tweeted that they are getting divorced, saying that he's been trying to divorce her since she met with Meek Mill for prison reform. He claims, <laughs> he claims that she is trying to get oh, institutionalized. And then he tweeted that the movie Get Out was based on him and a request for his mother-in-law, Kris Jenner, to give him a call. So first of all, Selena, did Kim's statement move you at all? Like, especially in regards to sort of his racial paranoia? Well, I'll, I'll say this, um, because there, there, this is an ongoing saga, as you said. Uh, the statement that she released, uh, the one I saw on Instagram, was very long, and she asked for compassion. She asked for privacy. She said that, you know, it's very hard uh, living with someone who she loves, who has a, a bipolar, who's going through a bipolar episode, uh, but on a very public spectrum, opening himself and their family up to scrutiny and judgment. And she said that she has is trying her best, but she said it's very hard to get someone help because they have to be an active participant in that help. I too have had a family member who we tried to get help and because of their rights, as a, 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 even though they have mental illness and you wanna help them, if they are not in, an imminent threat to themselves or society, you really can't go too far. So I honestly sympathize um, with uh, Kanye and with him at this time. Like, I get it. Politics aside, this is a human being. And if you ask me, his family, they deserve grace and privacy at this time. There is no doubt in my mind that he is having an episode. And to just to top things off, since, uh, the, the, since the things started playing out last week between Kim and Kanye, Kanye has since apologized. He apologized to Kim publicly yesterday. He put out a tweet saying that I know I hurt you by exposing very private matters. And, um, and he said that I did not cover you as a wife as you have covered me. So he has apologized. And since that, he also checked into an, um, an ER yesterday. Um, from my understanding, he checked in, then he checked out and an ambulance was called uh, to his Wyoming ranch. Uh, they checked his bowels and it turned out he was fine. So something is going on. And I just feel like as, you know, the responsible thing to do, especially for people in the media, is to not give this 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 episode too much 
unnecessary attention. Like Kanye said, I'm running for president. And then you have all this media out there and people writing about it. And he had an episode like we know he's not really running for president. We know he's putting out an album. We, we know he's having a bipolar disorder. Like, let's give this family some space and privacy. So did he apologize for this? Did he apologize for that, Selena? No, Stanley, he did not specifically apologize for that. And I would say a, a member of Harriet Tubman's family, one of her descendants, has spoken out and pretty much condemned Kanye for being so miseducated and speaking out of turn of, about this iconic abolitionist. Look, I did not say I ever agreed. I started my, my, my sentiments by saying, politics aside, this man needs help. Yeah. And Go ahead, Stanley. Kanye could need help and deserve help and also be an idiot too. And I think both apply here. I gotta ask Evan, because I know you you know, you're not in the black community, but you really go for us. Is it weird watching Kim be more woke and have more of like a racial analysis than Kanye? Well, I don't know if I would say more woke. We, I, I can't necessarily say what her intentions are. And also I want to reiterate how many uh, black women work for prison reform and it's just Kim Kardashian that maybe gets the attention for it. So wokeness I think is, is debatable and is a different kind of term. I think that she did release a statement. I'm, I'm on the fence about this. I know that uh, I have a friend in court, Stan Talawi, who mentioned that uh, because her mom uh, saw the OJ trial play out and how much attention that got, even over something that's so controversial and involves murder, and saw the attention and the fame that goes with that, that that's her perspective and it's coming, that's where Miss Jenner is coming from and then that's how that family's operated. This is Stan Tawi, who I, I co-host Let's Not Be Trash with. I'm not going to go there. I'm not in that family. I can't necessarily say what her... Uh, intentions are. Kanye has a disorder. I just don't believe necessarily Kim Kardashian does. So of course, next to that, Kim Kardashian may seem more lucid, uh, cogent, <laughs> but it doesn't mean that she doesn't still have a very problematic views. And look, Kanye West is still the one who said years ago, George Bush doesn't care about black people. This is still that person. Mm -hmm. I don't know what's happened to that person since, but this is not a linear uh, ascent, descent, no matter how you want to look at it, definitely probably decent. Um, it's not linear. Things have happened here. His mom passed. He probably did not get the help that he needed since then. He's in a marriage where he is always, always on the spotlight. That's how they, that family got their entire fame by the spotlight itself. So this is not any type of way uh, to develop your, your internal views, to deal with mental illness. Um, so I can't necessarily make that comparison. That's fair. All I know is that Kanye is definitely, definitely in the sunken place. And whether it's Kim, whether it's Chris, or whether it's somebody else, maybe the loving public, somebody's got to help Kanye. I get that it's not our job, but something ain't right there. Nobody's Speaking of that made their money off of stealing from black people. 
What? I said nobody told him to marry into a family who made their money stealing from black people. Good luck. Well, he made his choices, so now he lives. Yeah, with them. that's that's the point. I, I mean, he he has enough autonomy or had enough autonomy. I don't know where he's at mentally now, um, but he had enough autonomy to join the relationship too. So let's not take that agency away from him. Yeah, that's fair. Um, okay, so enough of Kim and Kanye. Uh, the next thing on the roster is talking about the federal occupation in Portland and some other US cities. So Portland, as you all know, is a city uh, that has been long known to turn up the intensity for protests. And now they're in the spotlight because of a federal occupation where swaths of federal agents are confronting, attacking, and subduing protesters after more than 60 days of Black Lives Matter demands. Uh, just last week alone, officers made 18 arrests last week on charges ranging from assault uh, to arson. Video has emerged of some federal officers yanking people off the streets and placing them in unmarked vehicles. Some say that radical activism on both sides of the extreme make Portland a hotbed for political unrest, but this federal occupation sets a super dangerous precedent on handling civil dissent and it strengthens Trump's law and order by any means necessary messaging. Stanley, what is it about Portland that has people going off right now? Portland is a state with a progressive or at least a democratic mayor and governor. So that's why the President Trump wants to do this. He's using different, he's using paramilitary from different federal agencies to go and protect federal buildings. And then he's using the chaos that they start to put on his campaign ads. He literally has posters and videos where he's showing the federal agents tear gassing people and arresting people, and he's going, this is Biden's America. That's what this is all about. And now they're sending the same kind of people to Chicago, and they're going to be sending them to New York. And what Department of Homeland Security is saying is that this is ruining their reputation. No one liked it anyway. But I think the way we should really be having this conversation is, this is horrible. When do we get rid of Department of Homeland Security? And how do we abolish it for good? Evan, I don't know if you have any thoughts on this, but is it is it weird that we're in this space where we need to condemn this national response, but not really sure how to do it? Like, how do you how do you think activists can actually ha open this conversation up since it's so large? Well, the first thing I want to say is that I saw a very good comment. Uh, I follow many immigrant uh, communities through social media. And they made a very good point. It's like ICE has been doing this to us for decades. So ICE has been snatching people, some of whom may even be uh, uh, citizens or, or permanent residents, but many of whom, of course, are undocumented. And of course, that doesn't matter towards their humanity uh, and towards American ideals, quote unquote. So they've been snatched off the street and in vans for a long time. So we, I just saying, let's absolutely keep that energy for undocumented immigrants that have been subjected, subjected to this for a very long time. Um, it doesn't surprise me. Trump will escalate as anything that he feels will suit his, his goals. Like Stanley said, some of this is out of spite. Some of this is he's doing this in a place where he is obviously, uh, gets opposition in those states because of their political views. 
Um, so none of this surprises me. As of now, there are some courts that have issued orders to uh, put injunctions against this type of behavior. I don't know if that will ever stop Trump, never has really before. Uh, so the only thing I could say for now is fight it legally, but I can't even have too much faith in that with this current president. Yeah, that's fair. And Selena, is there anything that you wanna let us know about the protests or anything you would say to the people on the ground, especially those filming it and actually letting us know what's going on? Absolutely, so I mean, let, let's just be clear, right? Uh, what the Trump administration is doing, they're using the military to intimidate and crack down on protesters. Uh, the Trump administration actually, they're painting these protesters as enemies who must be defeated in combat. He is literally in a war war with American civilians. And I think a, another reason why Trump is doing this is because he's doing anything to divert attention away from the COVID-19 pandemic, which he is failing to address. He is failing the American people. Um, so again, he, he, they're provoking and escalating tensions between police and protesters. Literally, one of the, the, the elements that Black Lives Matter has been protesting against is this type of militarization from police. So for them to stroke the flames, uh, it, it just it, they're trying to build this narrative of, you know, we're the enemy and he is the, the president of law and order. Uh, it feeds directly into his base. Um, he's acting like an authoritarian. But I think for some, for some, you know, very odd and horrible reason, there are a number of Americans that, you know, believe this and are because of this are just going to continue to vote for him. It's true. And to be honest with you, much like what uh, Trump is and what he does, this is very reactionary. I feel like, as always, you know, protesters are turning up. We've gotten to see some public acknowledgement, you know, some law changes, some policy things come forward. Um, and maybe it's scaring the white supremacists. Maybe it's scaring our government that sees that people are continuing to turn up and will not stop until things are better. Um, I wanna let y'all know about uh, the removal of Confederate symbols in the Capitol, because I think that's something huge that may be antagonizing Trump's behavior. Um, on Wednesday, lawmakers in the House approved legislation to remove Confederate statues from the U.S. Capitol. And this bill requires the removal of statues of people who served voluntarily for the Confederacy. Um, it would force states to replace statues like that in their National Hall collections. And it would also get rid of the statues of three men who defended slavery, segregation, and white supremacy. John Calhoun, Charles Acock, and James P. Clark. Um, while obviously, not obviously, but you know, in terms of aesthetic, obviously all Democrats supported this, 72 Republicans joined that vote, making it an extremely sort of bipartisan effort um, to remove this symbol of racism. Stanley, in terms of what we're hearing about protesters on the ground versus this happening at the Capitol, do you think this is just performative or do you think this is sort of a necessary long-term step? Can the answer be yes and no? Yes. Because that's what it is. This is nice. You probably should take, you should take on the statues of white supremacists and other said savages who, who ravaged and killed black and brown people and women. We absolutely should. Um, doesn't mean we have to run away from the history. We have to get the full context of the history, but also, Pass reparations and fund schools 
and take money from the rich and give it to the poor and like actually apologize and create a plan to really show accountability for the history of racism, Jim Crow, um, redlining and everything else this country has done to us. Because once again, a monument removed does not take away the fact that black people are being terrorized by state sanctioned violence all over this country. Word. Evan, do you think between this and the Pentagon, we're seeing, or sorry, between this and the Pentagon removing Confederate flags sort of secretly under Trump's nose, do you think that we now have to continue to call for our states to do it or is it just progressing? I think we should. I, Mississippi changed their flag, which had the Confederate flag in the flag. Uh, I think they're still redesigning it. I don't know what the replacement will be. I hope they just don't do what, what Washington did when they just call themselves a football team. They'll call themselves a state or call themselves a flag or something like that. Um, Wait, did they really do that? <laughs> the red, the uh, former, I won't even say the name again because it's so ridiculous, but the former Washington football team is calling themselves now just the Washington football team for this year. Uh, they are not picking a name. I thought they were going with the red tails. No? no that was just somebody on, on social media that made that. Uh, they, they, they're they're oh, pouting okay. pout, like a child uh, because they, they don't like that they had to take away racism. Um, I, I do, this should be a federal look. The only place where history like that belongs is in a museum of like showing in the hate section, <laughs> in the loser section of this country, in the racism section of this country. This, this does not belong anywhere on public uh, display. So they should all be taken down just like Nazi statues should be taken down. And the men in Germany are not celebrated nearly in the same way. I'm sure many of you saw that video that was passed around about the daughters of the Confederacy this wasn't even done right after the war. This was done to preserve that ideology because the people were dying who served in the war and couldn't pass it on. That's how racist this is. It should all be torn down. I appreciate that. And Selena, I'm gonna throw the last question to you because I feel like you have a good analysis on this. Do you think that this, this bill passed in the House is it going to pass in the Senate if it gets to Trump's desk? Is he going to sign it? Like, where are we at? Trump has been very vocal about um, not bringing down the Confederate statues. I mean, again, this is his base, right? He feeds directly into that. He has shown himself over and over again to be, uh, a, um, if not, a, I mean, some, it's available calling him a racist or whatever, but he definitely feeds those type of flames when it comes to white supremacy and racism. He uses that. Uh, to his own advantage and literally ran a campaign and won the presidency based on racism and white supremacy. So no, it does not serve him well personally or politically to, to take these Confederate statues down. But and I wanted to just add, because I read um, another historian actually said um, they, they weren't trying to preserve history by putting, by erecting these Confederate statues. What they were trying to do was prepare future generations of white Southerners to respect and defend the, prin the principles of the Confederacy. So they were doing it for their own preservation. Um, so yeah, it's about time that we remove um, these statues. But again, I'm not one for, we cannot erase the history. Like we understand history has been whitewashed. And if we are gonna keep any type of statues, even if it's our founding fathers or like people like Tom Jeff Thomas Jefferson, um, if you do keep it, then tell the whole story. 
you know, talk about how, you know, obviously they were slave owners. Obviously they, they raped people and they exploited black labor for their own gains. So we need to start telling the whole story. And that to me should be the focus. That's fair enough. I feel like this is a sort of a, a public demand that is sort of performative because if it's true, like you said, and there's no chance of, you know, the Senate passing this and then Trump passing it, then really this is just another statement. And, you know, the House is obviously the liberal wing of this. So, um, you know, it's expected that they would ask for that. Evan, did you want to add on to that point? Um, I also wanted to say very quickly, uh, the Dars of the Confederacy made their way into Southern textbooks and influenced how people were educated. So that's very important as well. And I completely agree with Selena. If you're going to have someone like Jefferson up, first of all, stop calling the woman he was with a mistress. She was raped. Okay. Let's start there. She had no choice in the matter. And yeah, let's not forget that this was clearly to perpetuate a racist ideology. It had nothing to do with history and it, it made its way into how generations were educated. Woo, valid, valid. Um, here's to hoping that we can at least move on. I know one sort of symbol in the Capitol right now that has no chance of being removed anytime soon and ending this segment on a positive note is our beloved Queen Bee, Miss AOC, who a few days ago went down in history as the baddest bee in Congress. Um, as per usual, she scalped a white man who thought she was the one. Turns out she wasn't the one. Uh, a few days ago, um, Representative Yoho from Texas uh, accosted Ms. Ocasio-Cortez, y'all know the story, and called her, if I may, um, in the days that followed, obviously outrage ensued. Um, and he ushered, gave the weakest apology that you expect from a crybaby Republican, which was basically saying that he didn't mean for AOC to hear him call her a shit. He says he cannot apologize for his passion or loving God and his family, um, and that he has a wife and daughters, and so he didn't mean it. Anyway, AOC clapped back hard in a nearly 10-minute impassioned speech AOC shredded his apology for what it was, nothing. Basically, <clears throat> she used this moment to teach men about expectations and oppressive language, that women like herself, being from a city like New York, are used to this sort of violent language and dangerous rhetoric, citing travel on the subway, working in food service, and coming to Congress. Some of the highlights of her speech are her reiteration of what makes a decent man, which is not just having a wife or a child, a proud moment honoring her parents and how they raised her to condemn abuse, and a lesson on misogyny in violent language. Evan, we've heard AOC's reaction on behalf of all women. What's your reaction? Well, my reaction is more men should be standing next to her. She shouldn't have to give that speech alone. And that's the problem. Like she said, the, pro the, the worst problem there wasn't just Mr. Yoho, it was the man that he was shoulder to shoulder with that did nothing. That's what enabled, if misogyny was that of but a few, it would not perpetuate like it does. Patriarchy would not perpetuate like it does. It's that all the guys that stand shoulder to shoulder and don't do anything, um, enable it. And that's why Stanley and I started Let's Not Be Trash to try to not only empower our own masculinity and talk about things men don't talk about enough and argue for the best kind of masculinity, 
but also to to stand up. You know, I would like to think that if one of us was there, we can give a, some testimony or two because that burden should not continue to fall on women. But none of that is surprising. And the most important part that she made there was that I have a wife, I have a child, a daughter. And she said, I'm someone's daughter too. And I want to tell your daughters this behavior is unacceptable because men don't realize how what they say permeates. Sometimes they think they live in this little vacuum with their wives and daughters. They don't. The things they say affect everyone else too. And uh, you can see that through that statement, Mr. Yoho didn't really humanize Ocasio-Cortez. And, and that's, that's the root of the problem. Well, I mean, it doesn't matter if they're someone's wife or daughters or people. I mean, I, I think you're, you're right, Evan, and I think ALC speaks for But the two things that really upset me about this is because someone's daughter. So what if they're not someone's wife? They're just a regular person, so everyone deserves respect. And then I don't think it's a level of ignorance. It's that a lot of men think that they can and they have a right to. And that's the much larger problem because he felt like he had a right to just jump in her face and start talking all crazy. But if a man would have been next to her or if she was a man, he wouldn't have had that kind of energy. And that's the problem. I've seen it happen a million times. I've seen it happen to people in politics. I've seen it happen to Selena. Like, we'll be talking about something that might will press her because they don't like what she said. Like, men think they have way too much agency over women in their bodies, and they need to fall back, and it's inappropriate. Yeah, that, that's what I meant by humanized, too, though. It's not just men shouldn't just see women in their relation to women. They should see women for an equal, full-fledged human being like they are. Like, men, a lot of men only seem to understand women's humanity, if that, if it's their wife, their daughter, someone they're having sex with. It's like any, and even then, sometimes they don't see it to the fullest extent. Uh, it should, a woman is a full human, regardless of your relation to her. And I completely agree with you, Stanley. He would not have that same smoke probably for a lot of male colleagues. And he, that's where he places women on his personal, you know, list of importance. Um, but I still think it's really important. AOC brought it up because this is a common excuse. It's a common excuse. The same logic behind, I have a black friend. It's somehow saying that your relation to someone that may or may not, you know, who knows what that relation is even like, somehow absolves you. And it, and it does not because that person is a human, just like any other black person is a human that can be oppressed by that language. And just like any other woman is a, is a person who can be oppressed by that language. Selena, since, you know, um, it's been put out there that you've experienced something similar, like in your professional life, what do you think about how AOC handled it and how she chose to use this as a teaching moment for other people who may use this language in the future? I applaud her. I applaud AOC for bringing this to the, the, um, the House floor and putting this in now the congressional historic um, history, like in the archives. Um, that's not something that's easy to do. And she actually was criticized by the New York Times who said, and, you know, um, in so many words that she was using this unfortunate uh, situation for her own political branding and um, clout, basically. OK. And people were definitely they took issue with that type of that, that framing, because it's what like, let's look at what, what we have here. We have a, a man, two men who one man who verbally attacked her, another man who didn't say anything. And she speaks out and all of a sudden she's a disruption. 
she's the one who's using this to her own advantage. No, that's not what's happening. And I think that that just speaks to the deeply seated uh, patriarchal ideas this society has, where it's it's so quick to defend this type of behavior from men. Boys will be boys or whatever they say. And they're so quick to, to, to um, come down so harshly on women. Um, to Evan's earlier point, there were other members of the house who spoke out, including men, I believe, who um, after she gave the speech, they also talked about it too. So she does have more support in the house. And again, the, the house and Congress has always been dominated by men. This has always been a, 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 a all men's, an all boys club, if you will. But for the first time, we're seeing some real representation. And for the first time, we're seeing some real accountability. Yeah, I, I just want to quickly add that I, I'm glad some men, of course, agreed with her after and reshared. But there needs to be men who are also giving 10 minute speeches and not for the next woman is called. Actually, no, there should be fewer men giving 10 minute speeches. No, men I, I just men got to speak up about patriarchy. No, not bro. Giving, not giving 10 minute speeches about nonsense, but about patriarchy and how no. it hurts women. They should. I know this is getting heated on like the the, the debate on like what we should do to all the time. Sorry, go ahead, Sammy. Yeah, hold on. Let me just put a point out there. I don't think it's misogynistic at all. You know? I, I mean, like, I know that he verbally attacked her, but a lot of people get called that, like, in general. Like, I feel like men, I don't, I don't know. I just feel like it's somewhere in the middle. It's not so intense where it's like, this is a super feminist issue and like men need to put on their capes and come to the front and speak up against misogyny. It's not that at all. And like, I do agree with Stanley that in this issue, a woman can certainly handle herself and say, no, don't speak to me like that because I'm a person. But I also don't think it goes that deep. And I think AOC's response was perfect because she, she even said, you know, obviously she talked about the, the, the violence and oppression and misogynistic language, but she even pointed back and said, you're not a decent man because of your, your daughters. You're not a decent man because of your wife. You're a decent man for being a decent man. And I think that's all it boils down to. Crappy language like that is not to me necessarily misogynistic just because it's wielded against a woman of color in an intimidating situation, but it is really crappy. And from a res representative, regardless of his target or his reasoning behind it is absolutely unacceptable. Um, Just one quick note. Like, do you think that he would have had that same kind of energy for me? No, I don't think so. But That's I think it would have looked different for you, but you don't know that he wouldn't have had that similar energy to- One of his gender. Yeah, that's fair. I mean, agree to just- very gendered term. I mean, men say all the time, but if you call a man, I, this is to be problematic from the Bronx. If you call a man a bitch, they are going to get punched in the face many times. If you call, calling women something that's very gendered and misogynistic to me. No, and I understand that, but I think I'm fair in being a woman and, and determining that it's not misogynistic to me. To you, of course. Yeah, um, I just think, that situation got a little bit out of hand, but I was very happy to see at least that AOC had the fortitude to clap back and had support on her side. Yeah. Um, in any case, thank you, Evan, for coming on for the news roundup. Uh, we do need to wrap and start the conversation with Brother Muhammad, who has now joined our call. Welcome. Um, 
But thank you all so much for going through the stories that made me kind of stress out and maybe shed a little bit of hair in the shower. And um, I can't wait to talk about our main topic for today. All right, yes. thanks for having me. Take care. Thanks, Evan. And thank you so much, Tammy, for uh, the news roundup. Um, uh, let me just intro this conversation. So last week on Be Her Talk, we had a conversation with Rabbi Abraham Cooper about the anti-Semitic rhetoric Nick Cannon used on his podcast, which led to him being fired from Viacom CBS. Now, through our conversation, we touched on the intersectionality between racism and anti-Semitism, as well as the cultural tensions between the Black and Jewish communities. Our conversation was then redistributed and shared on Black Enterprise, which led to many people talking about the issues we discussed during that episode. In addition, the Nation of Islam reached out to me and us asking for an opportunity to talk about their side of the story, their history, their efforts to advance the Black community, as well as their controversies. Now, although I have seen, personally, I have seen the Nation of Islam in communities of color, um, I've seen the results of their community organizing, but I would be remiss to not mention the very polarizing views that many, many people in the Nation of Islam um, have had or said, uh, particularly the Honorable Lewis, uh, uh, Minister Louis Farrakhan. Uh, back in 2015, I actually did attend the Million Man March, the, the second one. We know that the first one that Minister Louis Farrakhan organized was one of the most pivotal Black events of the decade. And to relive that experience in a way in 2015 meant a lot. It was a time of uh, solidarity. It was meant for a time of atonement. And it was it was something that I don't actively see um, enough of, uh, if you will. Um, I've also had um, seen the Nation of Islam be very effective in reaching out and reforming Black incarcerated people, even those in my own family. Um, and on top of that, I've seen how effective the Nation of Islam has been in patrolling communities of color. But on the flip side, I do not subscribe to many of the beliefs that I've heard uh, the Honorable Minister Louis Farrakhan preach. And in fact, the Southern Poverty Law Center describes the Nation of Islam, and I quote, as one, one of the wealthiest and best known organizations in Black America, its theology of innate Black superiority over whites and the deeply racist, anti-Semitic, and anti-LGBT rhetoric of its leaders have earned the Nation of Islam a prominent position in the ranks of organized hate. So I think that all of us have heard, seen, or had some type of experience with the Nation of Islam, but here in Be Heard Talk, we wanted to let the Nation of Islam speak for themselves. And that's why we have on the show with us, Brother Dimitri Muhammad. He is a student minister in the Nation of Islam under the leadership of the Most Honorable Elijah Muhammad and the Honorable Minister Louis Farrakhan. He serves as a member of Minister Farrakhan's research team, and he has written and published 13 books. Thank you so much for joining us on the show today, Brother Dimitri. Well, thank you so much, uh, Sister Selena, for having us. Very honored to be here with you today. Yeah, so, you know, I opened up talking about how Nick Cannon's remarks went went viral and has been covered and picked up all over mainstream media. That really re-sparked the conversation about, you know, anti-Semitism and racism. What was your personal reaction to those remarks and the backlash that Nick Cannon received? Well, I understood based upon uh, knowledge of this controversy that 
what was taking place with regard to Brother Nick Cannon and Deshaun Jackson and several other uh, high-profile brothers and sisters uh, was actually conceived of in 1994 uh, within the ranks of the Anti-Defamation League of B'nai B'rith, where they proposed at that time when Minister Farrakhan was a ubiquitous reality throughout Black America, filling up stadiums and arenas, and this upset them. And so they decided that they would punish, or to use their language, to place under an obligation any institutions or high profile persons who quote unquote, helped to legitimate Minister Farrakhan's leadership. So in reality, uh, Brother Nick Cannon was being punished for his close association with the Honorable Minister Louis Farrakhan. And, and to a lesser extent, some of the things that he shared and expressed during his conversation with Professor Griff. So I understood this phenomenon having studied it and actually written about it over the years. And uh, it was an unfortunate situation that in 2020, uh, black people don't have the freedom or the agency to pick and choose our own friends and leaders, which is a right that all other communities seem to be able to enjoy uh, unfettered and uninterrupted. Most black people, Sister Selena, uh, have never raised their hand in objection to those whom the Jewish community choose to be their leaders or their spokespersons or their advocates. And so I think in the black community, whether or not you agree with everything Minister Farrakhan says or not, I tell people all the time, husbands and wives don't agree with everything one another says. Sons and daughters don't agree with everything their parents have to say. So we don't have to agree with everything that a great man, a hero, a legend among us says to close ranks around him and say, as a community, we have a right to listen to our brother when he speaks out for us and our community. Um, brother Dimitri, you know, when it comes to the, the controversies and even being aligned or adjacent to Minister Farrakhan, as you said, there is you can get a lot of co controversy and backlash. We've seen that happen to Tamika Mallory, who's a friend of the show. She went to a Savior's Day, and as a result, she had to step down from being a leader in the Women's March. Um, do When it comes to that type of... Um, persecution or whatever you want to call it that people have or, or go through simply by, you know, being associated with the minister Louis Farrakhan. Do you think does something like that surprise you or do you acknowledge that some of the things and the rhetoric that the minister, minister Louis Farrakhan has said can be divisive and polarizing? Well, you know, first and foremost, I have to maintain the fact, Sister Selena, that minister Farrakhan has never presented himself uh, as a political person. He's never considered himself to be a politician or someone who is necessarily interested in how people uh, react to the truth that he speaks. Uh, so the minister conceives of himself as a spiritual leader. Now that's important, an important lens through which to look because last time I checked, America conceived of itself as a Judeo-Christian society. And of course, nowadays a Judeo-Christian and Islamic society but you know, historically a Judeo-Christian society, and when you search the sacred texts of Jews and Christians, you find that Jesus was accused of what the scholars call hard sayings. You find that the prophets of Israel, whom the Jews extol as their examples, they had stern rebukes of immorality, vice, and misconduct. And so from our vantage point, this is the best characterization of the language Minister Farrakhan has used. Certainly, 
when we hear the truth, I mean, we could go into our doctor's office and he may say, well, you know, Brother Demetrius, you have cancer, you have this. Now, that's truth. I might not like it. I might react negatively to it, but I can't deny the fact that it is the truth. And so what we uh, feel is though Minister Farrakhan has invited the leaders of these organizations, the ADL, Simon Wiesenthal Center, Southern Poverty Law Center, to have an open dialogue where we can present the firm foundation of facts and evidence that Minister Farrakhan's bold claims rest upon. Thank you for that. I do want to get um, your voice and, and uh, Stanley in here. I, I do want to open up this conversation to the panel. Stanley, you, you know, as a native New Yorker, as someone who currently lives in Harlem, you've also had interactions, experiences with the nation of Islam. I know that's not something that you subscribe to, but, you know, even as a, as a, as a younger man, as a millennial, what is it, what, what misconceptions or, 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 or even beliefs is it that you held about the nation of Islam and, what work do you think they have done in the community? Well, particularly because Malcolm X is such a big hero of mine, the Nation of Islam has always been a group that's been important to me. Um, and growing up in East New York, Brooklyn, and now living in Harlem, I've seen the footprint of the Nation of Islam all over my communities, whether they were providing security in East New York at the peak of the, of the, of the crack era and like the rising of the gang era, when the cops wouldn't do it, they were making sure kids got home safe from school. They were patrolling the parks so that you can play there without getting into any trouble or whether it was during like during the holidays. And even though they didn't celebrate Christmas, they were giving away toys and gifts to children. So I, I've had like a pretty like robust experience with the Nation of Islam. And as I've gotten older and like got, you know, more politicized and like have my own ideology, I would say that like, I don't agree with a lot of the things that like are said from the Nation of Islam about other people. I don't agree with their stance on um, same-sex marriage or people in the LGBTQIA community. Um, I, I don't agree with the things they said about Jewish people but I know that before it was cool for white folks to be in partnership with black people, and before it was cool to say Black Lives Matter, the Nation of Islam was a group that I can go to. Um, and I know that like those, people like Brother Leroy, who, who used to have a show on WHCR, um, would give me books to read and like ask me, he's like, listen, do you have a notebook? Take notes while you read it. Uh, we have folks like that. I had a, a brother named Knowledge who opened up a community garden in East New York and like gave me a tree. And he's like, this is your tree. You got to take care of it. Um, and like when I was over there, like learning how to like garden all that stuff, I wasn't getting in trouble. That was my that was my safe space. So you know, I have like I have a very rich experience with the Nation of Islam, um, which makes conversations like these difficult because it's like, for a large part, they they saved my life. They saved a bunch of other lives too. But I do have some like very like some 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 challenges with them. Brother, Brother Dimitri, like when you hear, you know, testimonies like that, I definitely want to get your feedback. And also, do you think that the controversies or the controversial statements that come out of the nation of Islam overshadows the community work? Do you do you guys ever have internal conversations about like just saying like maybe, you know, when it comes to speaking externally, tone it down because we want the work to speak for itself. We want the work to have to we want to maximize the, the volume of the work we're doing. Well, you know, Sister Selena, and I want to thank Brother Stanley for his very kind words uh, about his own personal experience with the nation and, and our work there in the, the New York area. Of course, we recently lost our dear brother, the East Coast uh, Regional Minister, Brother Abdul Hafiz Muhammad, who became a victim of COVID-19, and he did a lot of community work in the New York area. Uh, but I, I go back again uh, with regard to your question, you know, we, even though you know, people may consider us to be a political organization because as spiritual people, we certainly have a lot to say about socioeconomic 
uh, issues, political issues, et cetera. But where we draw the line is that if political considerations are inhibitors of our expressing the truth as we know it. And one of the things that you find, and I maintain and I emphasize this, is that in as much as Minister Farrakhan has been called an anti-Semite, a bigot, a racist, homophobic, et cetera, and we certainly could you know, deconstruct those arguments, we have never seen anybody from the uh, opposing uh, team, if you will, to say, you know, I listened to Minister Farrakhan's message and these are the areas where Minister Farrakhan is factually in error. And so I think it, be, it, it becomes down to a point, do we want truth or do we want political correct speech? Uh, I think if you look across the, uh, the American landscape, one of the attractive things in the last presidential election, especially to the white electorate, was the fact that Mr. Trump seemed to be oblivious to the use of politically correct speech. And his candid frankness uh, touched the hearts of many in white America. And I think it shocked a lot of people that many people actually uh, agreed with many of the racist things that he said, the sexist things that he said. But I think it showed that there's a mood in America moving away from political correctness where people want the freedom to express and to speak their truth as they understand. Tammy, I definitely want to get your thoughts on this. You know, you're someone who grew up overseas. You are some a product of a biracial marriage. You have very different views. What is it that, you know, outside looking in, you've thought about the nation of Islam? So I, I just want to say, like, I'm not very happy or comfortable with the direction of this conversation because with all due respect, Brother Muhammad, like, I understand where you're coming from and sort of, like, defending your group's sort of right to speak their truth and the work that they're doing. But unfortunately, I don't think that really answers the question as to why exactly is what they're saying so controversial. I want to make it clear, like, this is a religious extremist group. Like it is. In, in general, when you have a group say that a, a certain portion of individuals are not valid, for existing, when you say that homosexuality, which has been biologically proven in many species across all races, when you say that's a symptom of white supremacy, and when you condone race mixing and, and all of this other stuff, like that is hate speech. And, you know, I do say, you know, I, I don't have as much experience with the nation of Islam. I'm not a native New Yorker. And so I didn't get the chance to experience that in my neighborhood. But, you know, these groups often do for their communities because it is their mandate. On the same flip side of things, there are really like, you know, horribly conservative religious Jews who think similar things. They go against race mixing, they condemn homosexuality, and those are some of the most thriving Jewish communities that New York has to offer and all around the world because they take care of their own. But it is a mandate when you're upholding sort of racial and gender superiority that you take care of that group, is it not? So like, I want an answer basically as to why sort of public anti-Semitism and these extremely problematic statements are okay just because you're a group that's on our side and trying to empower our communities, especially when it ends up that some of your hate rhetoric ostracizes our very own communities. May, may I respond, Sister Selena? Oh, yes, please, Brother Dimitri. I, I, I wanted to say to Sister Tammy, thank you for your candidness 
uh, and frankness. Uh, I would, however, uh, challenge uh, much of the substance of what you said, particularly with regard to anything that Minister Farrakhan has ever said about denying a group of people a right to exist. Uh, I'm not familiar with that language and I'm a pretty careful student uh, of my teacher. Uh, I will go on to say is that, you know, uh, hate speech becomes a problem when hate speech leads to hate crimes. And you cannot identify in the history of the nation of Islam where any of that which has been pejoratively dubbed from our pulpits and rostrums as hate speech has ever been a precipitant of anti-Jewish crime, anti-white crime, or anti-gay crime. Fact about it, Sister Selena invoked the great memory of the Million Man March, and Rabbi Bruce Kahn of Baltimore attended the Million Man March, and he wrote about his experience at the Million Man March, where nearly two million black men appeared to come to hear what mainstream America would call an anti-Semite. Uh, however, you might expect that those two million men would have left the Million Man March after hearing from Minister Farrakhan to commit hate crimes. But the polar opposite was the case. Many of those brothers left. They joined churches, mosques, synagogues. Many of them became registered voters, increased their civic participation. And there were over 15,000 unadopted children that men from the Million Man March left and adopted. So the work of Minister Farrakhan proves that he is not a uh, progenitor of hate speech. We speak based out of our spiritual and religious understanding that is rooted in the sacred texts that are respected throughout America and the world. So now if there's a departure from the sacred texts of scripture, then I understand that. Many people have abdicated or walked away from so-called organized religion. I understand that. But our work and our preaching is based upon that. And I want to emphasize this as well. Anything that you've ever heard Minister Farrakhan say with respect to criticisms of Jewish misconduct in the Black community, anything you've ever heard Minister Farrakhan say regarding Gentile white misbehavior in the Black community, the minister and those of us who are his students are prepared to sit down and to show why we say what we say. And the minister has said for many years to the Jewish community, if you think that Louis Farrakhan is in error, then why don't you sit down at the table to dialogue and point out where I'm wrong? But you'll find that what we have been guilty of is has been citing Jewish sources, scholars, historians, and rabbis as they documented their own misbehavior with respect to black life in America. And so the minister has said, if you want us to disavow you know, our preaching and our research, then why don't you disavow the scholars whose work we are citing, you know, uh, particularly Rabbi Bertram Korn, uh, who wrote about the Jewish role in the slave trade, who spoke about it at Fisk University and the HBCU. And he said that the information that he researched was so inflammatory within his own community that his own wife told him he shouldn't publish it. But as a scholar committed to the truth, he published it anyway. So I think we have to uh, agree on a certain level that there are certain truths that even though they are true, they may not be comfortable for everyone to hear, but that does not mean that they are not true. And so Minister Farrakhan has maintained over and over again that his number one virtue is his commitment to the truth. Could I, oh, go ahead, Jamie, sorry. 
I just want to say one thing, which is that something I really like about the law in particular is that it is able to be interpreted any type of way. And that's how I feel about knowledge. You can wield knowledge for the freedom of peoples and you can wield knowledge for the oppression of peoples, but it is up to you to decide how you want to use that knowledge. And something that, you know, behooves me is the fact that the minister refuses to acknowledge sort of any political culpability by just saying, I'm not a political figure. And political really just means of the people. So if he is using this extremely heavy knowledge to sort of perpetuate this spiritual ideology, which in turn becomes political when it questions sort of people's validity and their place in the world, then that's when it becomes inherently political and problematic. But that doesn't mean necessarily that I think that everything that is said isn't factual. And that doesn't mean that those facts aren't there for a reason. It just means that you have a duty to promote knowledge for the dissolution of oppression, not for enhanced oppression or oppression led by black people. Stanley, I definitely want to get your um, I want to get your voice in here next thing. I just wanted to say, like, we're definitely hearing very two different um, understandings and perspectives. So, Stanley, I want to get you to jump back in here and help make sense. Yeah. So, like, the, and the, the thing that I did last week and I want, to, I want to do this week because I feel like it, it keeps getting missed out is like there are black Jewish people. And I feel like when we're having this conversation about Judaism and Jewish people, it feels like it's being centered on whiteness. And that is a problem because white people are not all the Jews. They're just not. And like, we need to be respecting that experience and those people. And also like the reason that the, the, um, the minister's words make me uncomfortable is because like, if you're, if you're talking about, when you say things like, and I have actually have a quote here, um, the Jews are responsible for all of this filth and degenerate behavior that Hollywood is putting out, turning men into women and women into men. Like when you're saying something like that, first off, like you're denigrating gay and trans people, which is like inappropriate and I can't stand for. But then also like you're trying to, you're, you're using language that might make certain people look at Jewish folks and trans people as a danger. So now you're putting Jewish people, which includes black people in danger, whether you mean to or not, and trans people. There are over 20 trans black women who have been murdered just this year in the United States. And that number continues to go up. And even as we're having this conversation about Jewish people in America, Black Jews consistently get left out of the conversation. And Black Jews face white supremacy in the United States, and they face it in Jewish communities that are dominated by white spaces. And we can't even get to that conversation and really dig into that because, like, here we are again, only talking about Judaism as white. And Jewish people and Judaism is not a corrupt religion. They are not a corrupt people. There are corrupt people within that religion. And I think, like, Minister Farrakhan, who was a dynamic speaker, like he has to be responsible and be clear about what the problem is. Because it's not Jewish people, it's white supremacy. And until we get to that, we're going to keep on being in this vicious cycle. Well, Brother Dimitri, I definitely want to get you back into the conversation here. Do you think that there could ever be a day where there is a coalition of, of all of us working together progressively for, you know, the shared goal of the advancement of of black liberation and freedom. Certainly I do. And uh, I would just add to what my brother stated, you know, the black Jews don't call minister Farrakhan anti-Semitic. 
uh, and black people who are the object of his uh, criticisms more than any other group. Uh, we don't call him anti-black. Uh, and I also have to say that there are many Jews who agree with Minister Farrakhan. There are many Jews who bear witness to the truth that Minister Farrakhan speaks. And they understand that this labeling of the minister as an anti-Semite is political posturing. Uh, former Israeli education minister Shulamit Alani spoke to Amy Goodman on Democracy Now! And she admitted, you know, that this is a trick that is used to silence criticism with respect to Israel or any other kind of Jewish misconduct. And so um, I, I, I would just hope that we would have an appreciation for those facts. And I would also like to say that, you know, you cannot point to any of the messages of Minister Farrakhan and draw a direct line of correlation between something that the minister has said and violence against Jews, violence against uh, LGBT. And the minister has maintained over and over again his love and respect for our brothers and sisters in the LGBT community. Uh, the minister is on record as having stated that. I don't know where uh, this comes from that Minister Farrakhan seeks to do harm or cause injury to our LGBT family. Uh, most of us uh, in the Nation of Islam we have members of our own family who are part of the LGBT community, and we love them and we support them. Certainly from our spiritual and religious beliefs, we don't consider that the homosexual lifestyle uh, is approved of by God. But we maintain our right to hold that position just as people hold positions to the contrary. Um. We do, I didn't even realize that we're running out of time here. We do have to start to bring this conversation to a close. Um, but, you know, Tammy, as we, you know, we here and Be Her Talk, we're all about advancing. We're all about letting the platform be open and as fair and balanced as we can be. Um, but we do share the same goal. We may not all agree with the Nation of Islam and the sentiments that have been shared or, or past statements, but when it comes to liberation, that's where that's what actually unites unites us all. What is it that you think needs to be done to bring us closer to that goal? And how and what would you say to different religious groups and sectors, the Nation of Islam, you know, Judaism, uh, you know, leaders in all of these different communities? How can we all come together for the betterment and the advancement of Black people? So for me, I'm actually going to quote something that um, the minister has said at a press conference to the National Association of Black Journalists. I'm not sure what year it was, but I was really happy that someone shared this video because it made a lot of sense to me and it really was very revolutionary. So the minister explained, you know, to the group that a scared to death Negro is a slave. And that is a bar of truth that I think everyone needs to remember. He was basically saying that, you know, if someone, referring to the, the people in the room, the press, the journalists, if someone can take your job for speaking out, that means that you're not free. That means that you're controlled. And that is a tactic of fear that white people and media use to keep our voices subjugated. This is a bar of truth I really like, but 
I want to remind folks that while fear is an emotional tactic that we need to shed, we also need to do the, shame, the same for shame as a tactic. No one should really be ashamed of who they are fundamentally. You know, even if, and I, I, you know, I love clowning white people much like the next person, but even if you're white and you directly come from slave owners, there's a chance at redemption. It's about what you do now. So if you can shed that fear of the white supremacist capitalist system, and you can shed shame about who you are or sort of your backdrop and just get into the movement and start defending the people that need it most, whether that's showing up for pro-black causes or standing up to anti-Semitism or whatever it is, that I think is what puts us on the path of unity. So. Thank you for coming and for explaining your uh, your viewpoints to us and explaining that truth is multifaceted. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Stanley, I want the same question to you as well. Uh, do you think we'll live to see a day where a, a multicultural, multiracial coalition of people could come together for the advancement of Black people? And if so, what can and should be done so that we can all come together? Um, we will not live to see that day, but that's okay. Um, it is not our job to get there. It's our job to carry the baton as far as we can so that the next generation can have an easier time doing it. Um, and we should be trying to fight for that because, you know, unless we're, if one of us isn't free, none of us are free. And, and if all of us are free, then we're, then we're all free. Um, but I do want to pick up a little bit of what like Tammy said um, in the beginning of her, her answer, her last answer, which like, I felt really challenged with. And I'm going to go off script here, so don't kill me. Um, I am really frustrated because I feel like we've given the brother Dimitri a harder time than we did the actual rabbi. And I'm going to speak for myself, actually. I'm not speaking for the rest of the team. You know, I have some very defined feelings about the way that Israel is running an apartheid government in Palestine and the way that white supremacy has crushed those brown and black people in that country. And I had some issues with the way that, in my opinion, he erased white privilege. And I didn't say anything. And I didn't say enough. And like, just like I disagree with some of the views of the Nation of Islam, I disagree with some of the views that he said on the show. But when this black man came on the show today in his black organization, I was more afraid of what the repercussions would be if I pushed back too hard from, from the rabbi than I would for De Brother Dimitri Muhammad. And I think that goes to show you the insidiousness of white supremacy. Because I have people in my life who I love and I know, and I, Jewish people do not run the media. Jewish people are not inherently evil. Jewish people do not own everything, right? And like, I know that and I feel good about that, but I am very clear that the bigger problem is white supremacy. And white supremacy is so powerful, it is weaponized anti-Semitism in a way that makes people feel like they can't be comfortable to speak and that I should feel more comfortable like going after this brother over here who like, yes, I think I disagree with him than I would going after a rabbi and not because he's Jewish, but because he's white. And I know what whiteness can do if they don't like the way that I speak. And that's very, very frustrating. Um, I don't really have an answer to that. If I'm being honest with you, I just want to put that into the air because this is all messed up. And this is the kind of stuff that's going to keep us in this cycle of violence and white supremacy. And until we are able to cut through the fat and identify the candy man in the room, 
white supremacy, the industrial white complex, unless we are willing to identify that as the ultimate enemy and go after it with everything that we have and dismantle every single piece of it, we're going to be in these spaces where even when we're not talking about it, it is in the room, breathing behind our necks, keeping us in check or making us go harder against other people because we know we can't do it to the person that really deserves to smoke. So I don't know. I don't know, man. I'm, I'm frustrated, but thank you, Stina. No, thank you, Stanley, for your transparency and being so open, honest, and raw in that moment. Um, you know, I don't, that was a surprise to all of us. Uh, Brother Dimitri, if you heard the words of Stanley and um, Tammy, I do want to give you the last word here on this panel about um, just moving forward and making sure that, again, the goal is freedom. How do we get here? Well, I'd like to close uh, by thanking all of you for the privilege and the opportunity to engage with you. Uh, I have enjoyed it and uh, I, I like the questions because, uh, you know, we want to be able to respond and we are prepared to respond to whatever questions come before us. You know, we are not a people who hide from, you know, what we believe or have anything to hide. Uh, we believe what we believe and we don't mind speaking it. And so we, we are always happy to have an opposing viewpoint presented to us because it helps us to understand how our message is being reacted to uh, across those who are outside of the four walls of our respective mosques and study groups. And that's always healthy. And I think that, you know, the future is bright if young brothers and sisters like yourselves uh, continue to do this kind of work, continue to be open-minded and continue to uh, critically engage even viewpoints that you may not agree with. I mean, last time I checked in the black community that I grew up in, we were not a monolithic group, but we were a community, we were a nation. And so this is the idea inherent in the concept nation of Islam. The minister has said that the nation of Islam has room for churches, for synagogues, for temples. We want a nation for our own people. Uh, so in that nation, people have different ideologies, different ways of life, different religious beliefs. And so that's inherent in what we are about. Unfortunately, most of the time, people talk about us and they don't talk to us. And so I'm very appreciative that you all were courageous enough uh, and sincere enough to actually allow us to speak with you and to share your platform and to talk to your audience. And so uh, many thanks to you and uh, peace and blessings to you and your families. Thank you, brother. Thank, Thank you, you so much. Thank you so much, brother Diedrich. Um, I'll just end by saying this, that I 100% agree that we need to have more of these uncomfortable conversations. I think that if we ever do want to get progress and, and want to heal and want to unite, it's going to take more of this. And yes, like Brother Diedrich just said, we're not a monolith. We don't all align and agree, but we do have a shared purpose and a shared goal. And the only reason why you know, different groups form, whether they're extremists, whether they're deemed militant or deemed extremists, it's because of oppression. Like we would not even have different types of sectors and organizations if it wasn't for 
being oppressed. And I think that that becomes the cry of the oppressed where it's like, look, we didn't, we tried to march peacefully. We, you know, we boycotted, we stood on picket lines, but we're still not free. And it's because of that, um, why we have seen so many different tactics and strategies. And no matter which one you personally align with, I do think that there's room for all of us in this fight. I will say that again, I do not stand with everything Minister Louis Farrakhan has said, but I do understand how dynamic his voice has been because he is one of the only black leaders that I've seen never cave to the white establishment. And anytime you hear him speak, you know he is speaking from his own truth and, and honesty. I can't say that about too many other black leaders, unfortunately, because they either have, you know, they're either um, funded by special interest groups or they have their own political agendas. And in order to navigate in this space, in, in, in this country, unfortunately, you do have to compromise in some type of way. So I, again, I do not align and I cannot condone everything Minister Louis Farrakhan has has said, but I understand why it was so important for Black America to have that type of leader to show that you can still be open and honest and, and speak from your own place of truth um, as we fight for liberation. So on that note, I do again want to thank Brother Diedrich for uh, coming on the show today. I want to thank everyone who is watching us live uh, via Facebook. Thank you so much for your comments and your engagement and if you're listening via podcast please share this show and tag us at be heard talk again that is be heard talk you can also support us on gofundme by giving a donation and supporting us we will continue to support the issues and the causes that you care about thank you Peace. thanks yeah.